Hi folks, welcome to the World Station podcast with myself, World War II Explorer, Lawrence Waller. In Season 2, Episode 9, we're diving right back into our conversation with Paul Woodarge, looking at the experience of his great-uncle, Lieutenant Cyril Rand, leading the men of his platoon in C Company, 2nd Royal Ulster Rifles, during the fierce fighting in Normandy in July 1944. In this particular instalment, we should be turning our attention to the experiences during Operation Charmwood, the assault on Hill 60, and the subsequent consequences for Cyril's platoon. We discussed their experience on entering the ruined streets of Caen, which had originally been an objective that Montgomery had hoped to capture on D-Day itself back on the 6th of June. However, now Caen lay in ruins, devastated by an air raid by the Allied Air Forces in preparation for Operation Charmwood. We also discussed a few very lucky escapes, Cyril's interactions with some of the civilians who lived in Caen, the actions during the advance with Truon as part of Operation Goodwood, as well as much, much more. If you wish to help support the World Station podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon, you can get directly involved in the podcast with questions you wish to be answered and have your say on topics you wish to hear discussed. And that's just the beginning. Discover more by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash www2nationhq. The link to this is also in the bio below. Thanks very much for your support. Anyhow, without further ado, let's dive right into our latest instalment here on the World Nation podcast. Well, let's look at Charnwood, Operation Charnwood, early July 44, uh, a large concentrated push to finally capture the crucial Norman city of Caen, you know, which we, we've already touched on was originally um, objective of D-Day. Can you talk us through the battalion and your uncle's experiences in this operation? I mean, there's a lot about Hill or Rincontour 60 on the 9th of July. Can you talk us through that, please, Paul? Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, they're, they're finally moved out of Combon Plain. They've had, in fact, my uncle went to go, went on a couple of days to Bayer, got to see the cathedral, which is interesting because I live in Bayer now, so they know that he walked through these same streets. And and it's a bit of levity because there was a shop in Bayer that had been um, damaged somehow. And Bayer famously wasn't hit by bombers, but I think it had been a family that had moved in land or something, but it was a shop of camembert. And when finally, when Bayo is liberated, they kind of open the door and this, there's been, water's got in or something and the camembert has gone rotten and you couldn't go in it without a gas mask. I mean, I don't particularly like the smell of camembert when it's kind of ripe, but he talks about the fact he's walking down the street of Bayer and it's kind of cordoned off and he thinks, is it a bomb? Is it a German sniper? No, it was a ripe camembert shop that needs, you know, to be cleared. But they go back up to, towards Caen and it's funny again, the role of, although they end up being kind of, we'll talk about it in a minute, the first unit into Caen, their kind of role was secondary to other things happening around. There's a Canadian advance. There's, of course, famously the 500 Lancaster bombers that fly over. And my grand uncle talks about what witnessing all that. There's the naval bombardment. And he, it, it, you, when he talks about that advance towards Caen through Hill 60, he's very much writing about it as feeling that he's in something that is so big he has no role in influencing it if that makes any sense at all. You're part of us. He said D-Day felt big, but this assault into Caen felt even bigger. And you just felt you were a pawn in some massive great machine. And as they're moving in uh, towards Contour Line 60, which has all been kind of swallowed up by the expansion of Caen, they, they, they can see Columbell Steelworks over to the, the side. And the rumor was the Germans are using it for spotters. And the German artillery was just terrible. And my uncle loses eight men killed in his platoon. Um, and this is eight men from 36 on D-Day that would already have been reduced by several because the month of Com in Combon Plain, there had been, you know, bombardments and patrolling. There had been an odd men killed. He'd lost one man who was a replacement who'd come in just after D-Day who just had a complete breakdown. Just, I think he went on a patrol or something and he came back and he was, he went crazy. Another man that wasn't in my uncle's platoon, I think it was the 14 platoon, had stepped on a um, anti-personnel mine near Com and had lost his um, testicles and, and, and penis and went completely berserk. And all the men see this. And, and again, during that time in Combon Plain, there was a sense of keeping men's morale up because they're not feeling they're advancing, they're not feeling they're gaining anything, they're sitting in the same holes day after day and you're losing men. Like the British of the 6th Airborne Division up on the, on the eastern flank, sitting doing... You know, you're losing men every day, but no one's really telling you what you're doing and why you're, what you're doing is important. No, no one's explaining to the Royal Oster Rifles while they're in Combon Plain 
hey, while you're here, guys, there's these other things going off. We're doing we're doing this. We're doing Villa Bacar. They're just sitting there wondering why day after day they're losing men kill, but they're not really doing anything. So anyway, I digress. We come to Hill 60. And as they're approaching, just the, not only the awesome power of the RAF bombardment and the artillery, the Agra that's coming in behind them, also the German artillery. And, and it's not just that my uncle lost eight men, is that three of the men were killed by my uncle says in 88. Now, whether it was an 88 or whether it was just a German artillery piece, I don't know, because as we know, every gun is a German 88, every tank is a Tiger. But three men were killed by an 88, but they would, they disintegrated. They just literally disappeared. And and they were just a few steps behind my uncle as they're moving across. And and, and again, they're, they're not feeling they're likely to engage any Germans ahead of them. It's part, part of a kind of a divisional advance towards the city. Then this artillery just literally disintegrates. Three men just disappear. And how difficult it was, my uncle, to deal with having to talk, you know, write the letters back home later to their, their, their relatives and what have you. Those three are buried in, in Duva de Livron cemetery there and my uncle would say how when he would go back to that cemetery after the war he couldn't face going to their gravestones although he wished he could because he knew there'd be nothing there literally would be just the gravestones there because there was there was nothing to find and how difficult it is just there's someone you've spent a year and a half training with there one second and two seconds later three of them are just gone and and that's that's his abiding memory of that which is yeah brings it all home uh you know, he, he's feeling like he's out of control. He's, he's in, a, in an event that's so big, he can't, he can't be part of making it better or worse. It's all so huge, just does his job. Well, turning to the city itself, um, you mentioned, you touched on that. Am I correct in thinking that the second RURs will actually have that distinction of being the first British battalion to enter the city? Yeah, I mean, Canadians probably got there first um in terms of chronologically but the first british unit was the royal officer rifles and and again the the, the description of moving into the village or moving into the, the city of Connor, it's like 12 pages in the book and and i could read it all but i'm not going to but again it's just this sense of just the overwhelming power i mean little throwaway comments he makes of when they're leading his men in you couldn't even tell what was a road and what was just you know a garden because everything was rubble so he's he was following he had he had 14 maps in his map case prior to d-day and by the way they were only given their all their last sealed orders on the boat so the platoon commander although they knew what they were supposed to be doing in theory by training on maps with fake you know the different place names he only found out it was going to be sword beach and and, and leon samer on, on boat on the boat going across but he has 14 maps so he's looking at the advance to Caen. And his map of Caen that he used for the advance on July the 8th is in the Memorial of Caen, but not on display, it's in their archives. Um, but he can't even see streets. I mean, there's so much damage, he can't even tell what is a street and what's just not a street. And Caen, like any kind of crossroads town, when you drive through it, walk through it, now it's obvious, the roads, it's like a spider's web of roads going out in like a, you know, um, spokes of a wheel. But at that morning, you couldn't tell what was what. Um, so that I think is a very vivid um, understanding just how much damage had been done to Caen by, by the bombardment by, that, that preceded the attack. Well, surely a bit like Monte Cassino, this is kind of counterproductive in the sense of it's going to do more hindrance to your forces than, and obviously aid the enemy. Is that what your uncle experienced? Yeah, I think, and I think beyond thinking about it as a as a as a strategic error, I think it was the sense of it being a human error as well because you know not that he, we, we ever really spoke about how he felt about i don't know bomber harris and, and and eisenhower and montgomery it was always about the lower level stuff i think as a platoon commander you are in that kind of unique position where you're seeing it from the ground soldiers point of view but you also because you're a platoon commander you're going to o groups you know what the big plans are sometimes as you know you meet a private in some unit who never really knew what they were meant to be doing you know they, they only found that out later but my uncle, of course, in his role, would know what the plan was, would know what the objectives are, would know what the what's going on left and right, because that he'd have been having that information. So he always knew what was going on. But that human experience, one of the stories he would tell about entering Caen, and was was there was a particular civil, French civilian who, when they got down this long kind of hill that descends into Caen, 
And there's sporadic gunfire they can hear elsewhere. But again, it's like my great uncle was fortunate enough to often not be in the epicenter. Although he's in these amazing, um, critical battles, he seemed to always, until he, we get to the point where he was wounded later on, he was always on the periphery of them just by luck again. So you can hear gunfire left and right, and there's a house that's just been destroyed, apart from like a, uh, the, the, um, the doorway, like a stone door, and crouched in this doorway is a French lad, and he's like 17, 18 years old or something like that, and he's crying because he sees the British soldiers arrive, uh, arriving. And my great-uncle could speak a bit of French because um, he'd done the training course. Again, it goes back to they'd been on a language course. One of the two weeks he did was basic French, which to me would have given the game away you're going to France, but I think they probably knew that by then anyway. Anyway, so he converses with this French guy there, and this French guy has got a bottle of Either it was Calvados or Pomo or Cider or something, and he wants to celebrate it with the British soldiers. So they, you know, Uncle was a bit torn because he's meant to be moving on to the center of town. There's a Frenchman there who wants to kind of celebrate the liberation. So they stop for a couple of minutes and get some tin mugs out and have a bit of the, uh, the cider, whatever it is. But as they move off, they realize that the young lad has is, he's just literally buried his parents. His parents have been killed in the RAF bombardment like hours earlier and he's just buried them they're 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 they're, well not even probably buried them. there's like a pile of stones like an improvised cross there so this guy had been sheltering the doorway of the house during an ref bombardment that has killed his bloody parents and yet he's still there with a bottle of something to celebrate the liberation with the british soldiers who represent the force that has just killed his parents and to me that's one of those amazing stories that kind of conveys those mixed feelings the French are experiencing of, hey, the Germans have finally gone, this town is ours again, but oh my God, it's in ruins because they've destroyed it to get there. And that's that's that human element, I think, is, is so fascinating. I think it's hard, to, as you say, it's really hard to calculate and get your head around the scale of this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, again, it's... It, the, compared to D-Day was the bigger event, but it always felt to my great uncle that Caen was was the biggest thing he was ever took part in. You know, it, because I guess a month in, as we know, we've got all our mass artillery by now. We've got air power. We've got all these 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 um this might behind us that we can finally use there. And again, it's why he feels that he's kind of a pawn in something that's bigger than him. Uh, but when he gets into town or the city, it was a bit different because. The, the the main issue was is the East Riding Yeomanry, other unit, armor units, they couldn't venture as far because all the roads are blocked with rubble. So though the idea was to get into the center of Khan with everybody together, so engineers, tanks, infantry, the roads are blocked. And so there's a delay for the tanks to actually get in the center. So it's just these, it goes to platoon, platoon level again. So, and not just platoon, it's section level. So they're having to divide their platoons up into sections and each one are kind of picking their way through rubble trying to head towards their objective and in the end again there's not that much fighting when they get into the center of court the germans have kind of done their bit they've they you know there are they're having some actions there's some really quite um pivotal tank engagements between panthers and canadian armor kind of towards the the west of the city but in the center because of the road network the germans have kind of kind of buggered off to a certain extent there's the odd sniper here and there but that doesn't mean it's any less terrifying leading your platoon in over rubble, looking at every, you know, building that's still standing. Is there a sniper in there? Is there a rifleman around that corner? Is there mortar over there? So again, he talks about an event that lasted really a couple of hours, but it's like 20 pages in the book because he talks about every every little little moment there. Um, so yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, there's a photo you and I have discussed on Twitter of your uncle standing in the streets, uh, you know, he's littered with rubble in front of a pharmacy, uh, him and another comrade looking at a road sign to Paris. I mean, what's the story behind this image and, you know, his experiences of that? Well, it was just that they just kind of taken the city and the, the, the sergeant on the left is Sergeant Rainey. So he's, he's experienced platoon command and it's just a classic shot of British infantry because the sergeant's just wearing a pullover. He's not wearing a battle dress. My great time has got his Sten gun. And at this point... Uh, for the uniform aficionados, didn't even have proper cloth pips on his epaulets. It was just black felt, squares of black felt. That's all he had to represent uh, being a, a first lieutenant. Um, and carrying a Sten gun, and you can't see he's an officer. There's nothing in, there's no map. All the maps are in his blouse and 
compasses hidden in his pockets and stuff. But it was also, the photo was also a newsreel. It was an AFPU team were going through taking a newsreel or footage, and then there was a photo taken. And Daily Herald, I think, was the newspaper that published it on the cover a couple of days later. Um, and of course, he was able to write in his letters home saying, if this, you get, I think this is going to be in the newspaper. By the time his letter gets, gets to, to, to West London, it was like a month later, and they, they had to struggle to get copies of the, the newspaper, but they went to the office or something, and the family got a couple of copies of it. But it was one of those things that... Um, that just kind of randomly happened and he and he and the guy the photographer said you know you'll be we'll try and get this one on the cover of the newspaper or something like that but it's interesting as well that just after um you know they're setting up platoons they're going to certain buildings and sections are taken over areas he has a time to to, to for kind of reflection again he goes off the abbey aux uh Odin, um, or the two abbeys in Caen, and goes off there and kind of and Miraculously, the two abbeys had survived mostly without any bomb damage. Indeed, they were crammed with French civilians, things like that. And he has this moment to kind of reflect and he sees these French people in there, you know, lighting candles and they're grateful to see him. And um, and he can kind of consider how he'd been fortunate enough to, to get in the city alive. And, they're, you know, they're, if you're a platoon commander, you've been talking about Caen for a month. And then finally, there you are there, almost almost an anticlimax because as I said, they'd expected this big battle and there was a battle, but again, my uncle's involvement was kind of peripheral. So they hadn't really had this conclusion. It was, oh, we're here now. And we'll just set up in these buildings here. And um, it's it's about the various setting up of this shop here becomes this CP for this section and, and going back and establishing communications with the rest of the regiment and indeed the tanks, the engineers that were coming through. So it was always busy, but again, not so much in the way of, of action. We talked about the good fortune and luck that your uncle experiences, certainly at this point of the war. You know, they say curiosity killed the cat, but I think it's fair to say in your uncle's case, curiosity actually certainly helped save his life in Khan. You talk us through what happened there. Well, yeah, it was it was it, it, it was the top of this road earlier, where at the bottom of it they met this civilian who had the bottle of cider. I think it's the same road. This is back in the early morning. And uh, this is when the Germans, I guess, are doing their kind of last bombardment before the ones in the city pull out. I expect what's going on. So, so the main the, the German artillery that's been uh, on them on their approach to the city is kind of subsided they're now in the city. But there's this sporadic kind of shelling and stuff happening. And as they're going down there, they're kind of that that he's hopping from foxhole to fox, you know, well not foxhole, crater to crater, and moving his platoon down there. My great uncle sees something kind of shining at the side of the road. And he just kind of, what's that? And just goes off and looks at it. And it was a really, as he would describe, an ugly paperweight. One of those things like your nan had when you were a kid. That were, I mean, do they even make paperweights anymore? One of those, you know, full of <laughs> glass, globey thing with pattern stuff in it. It was quite ugly and garish. And he went, well, I've, I've got it now. I'll, I'll put it in my pack and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it for later. And then while he's putting his pack, where he just crawled from, was hit by a, by a shell, a German shell. So he literally just he left an area that was destroyed two seconds later by shell coming in because he went to go and get this this awful looking um, um, paperweight. And um, he had a couple of close calls like that. So I say he wasn't religious. That early when he was training, he'd been on leave somewhere in England. He picked up some. It was some. I don't know how he got it or why he got it. It was something some British soldier bought back from Burma, allegedly, probably made by some guy in East. It was some kind of like Buddha figure or some kind of you know um, far eastern, like those things you see in Chinese takeaways in the door. Something something exotic, and it was ugly. And uh, and 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 he carried it in his pack. He kind of felt like it'll be a lucky thing. And he had he would have he referred to the he was given a Bible and his fiance wrote a a letter they kept in the front of his Bible. So he had these these connections, little bits of things that he felt were were lucky. Um, and the snow, the, the sorry, the, the the paperweight was something he kept kind of for the rest of his life. I don't know what ever happened to it. Um, his daughters, who I haven't seen for years, my dad sees them occasionally. I, I guess one of them has got it, but apparently it was it was really ugly. But he kept it and yeah, saved his life because I say he crawled over to get it, and bang, a shell came in and hit where he'd been. Operation Goodwood, mid July, this huge armoured thrust south of Khan. What was to be the role of the rifles and the you know the objectives of Ninth Brigade and specifically Second Battalion? 
Well, it's it's the more the same really. Third division basically are on the left flank, protecting the armor to their right, and then Ninth Brigade are kind of on the left flank of that, and Ulster Rifles are kind of on the left flank of that, and Uncle's Platoon is kind of on the left flank of that. Almost, it's almost it's always again in this kind of peripheral edge edge of thing, um, and. What's interesting is by then is that they are now having to phase in some of the replacements coming through because they have lost these people like at, at Hill 60 on the way to Khan. And he, he, you can sense that his leadership uh, challenges are changing. Um, and the men that are experienced are getting a bit pissed off and a bit weary. And it's, you know, two months in now. And we know the score that some of the units that are going to come in to replace some of the you know, the third division or the British Sixth Airborne perhaps took a bit of time to adjust to get into theatre. And there's a sense by now of why is it us again? Why is it the third div again? What can't, you know, the officers who've been back on, you know, 48 hour passes back to Bayer or back to the coast or stuff, they're seeing divisions coming in day after day. And of course, we know that these divisions are going into the front line elsewhere. But within the third division, there's a sense of why are we not being replaced at the front line? But anyway, I digress um, because Troan was the village that they were, the Rolosters uh, rifles and the East Riding Yeomanry were, were to be heading to. But it's actually um, uh, Sanaville is the village just um, uh, west of Troan that they are going to move in from. And this is where, as you know yourself, when you research these things, what my uncle says doesn't quite tie in with what the war diary says, which doesn't tie in with what the uh, the Google Earth and the maps say. And so you read east and you go, well, it can't have been east, it must have been west. And you kind of have these you bits you're reading where the road meets this road. And you go, well, it, can't, it, it can't be there. But I, I know where it was that my great uncle's essentially war came to an end. And it's the the uh, the Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery at Banneville La Campania, so just on west of uh, um, Troan. You, you know the road yourself, Lawrence. That you, there's a bit you park at and you walk maybe a hundred yards down to the cemetery. But where you turn in towards the cemetery, there's a there's a there's a kind of a almost gothic-looking gatehouse to a chateau, and that chateau is sort of south of Troan. And obviously, the Troan there, like everything else in that part of Caen, has been there's new roads in and there's new developments, things like that. But um, my great uncle is there to um, scout it. There's a track. It's one of those old kind of typical French tree-lined tracks that leads up to a chateau. That rumor has it there's Germans there while the rest of the division is doing something else. C Company, 15 platoon, kind of clear that chateau. And, and this is when it's um, involved with um, the uh, the East Riding Yeomanry again. So um, I, I can I can kind of. Uh, read some of that to you really because i haven't read much from it again so i'll just i'll just find the area here it's in here somewhere uh, here we go um being concerned uh, about a threat to the battalion's advance the next morning the co had ordered c company to send out a small patrol to investigate Although the patrol, consisting of Roy Purcell, who was my great uncle's other best friend after Bobby Dizarins, who was killed in on, on June the uh, 7th back in the Common Plain, Roy Purcell is his other best friend. And the C Company Sergeant Major Tim Kelly, we were, we were unable to pinpoint any enemy position, but there were sounds of movement along this track towards the chateau. When we resumed our advance the following morning, I was ordered to take my platoon along the track to ensure that the wood on either side was clear of enemy. For this operation, I was allocated a troop of tanks from the East Riding Yeomanry. I was fortunate enough to have three good section commanders to whom I quickly gave my orders, and allowing them a few minutes to brief their sections, we prepared to move off. I placed one section on either side of the track with a third section and platoon HQ following up in reserve on the left-hand side. I decided to move with the left-hand section, keeping close to the track in order to maintain visual contact with the section on the far side. The tanks were to move along the track between the two sections, providing covering fire as necessary. All was quiet as we moved off. Shafts of sunlight filtered through the trees and birds sang in the highest branches. I began to think that either the patrol had been mistaken in believing the wood to be occupied or the enemy had pulled out overnight. After 50 yards, the peace was shattered by the clatter of machine guns and the whine of bullets as they saturated the track, ricocheting off the leading tank and the trees. Fortunately, the trees were large and grew quite close together, offering a fair amount of protection and enabling us to proceed through the dense underground undergrowth of shrubs and brambles. 
As we moved between the trees, I could see on the other side that Corporal Brown and his section had already made contact and disposed of several of the opposition. I noticed that the tanks had not kept up with us, but had halted and were firing along the track and into the trees. At least one of them was. The, tr uh, the track was only wide enough for one tank, the others remaining in file behind the leading tank and unable to fire their guns. The rounds from the tank that were able to fire were ricocheting off the trees and seemed to be causing us more nuisance than the enemy. The troop commander, and this is interesting, he just says troop commander, because as you said there earlier, they've been working with these guys for, you know, se seven weeks now. He still doesn't kind of know their names. I don't know what to read into that, but it's interesting. He said that apparently the troop, the troop commander said later they had stopped as he was concerned that there might be an anti-tank gun along the track. I had now started to lose men to the German fire, and to move near or onto the track meant instant dispatch. I had sent Rifleman McCabe and two other men from Platoon HQ to bolster the numbers of the right-hand section. Now, looking across the track, I saw him, none too gently, relieving a German of his Panzerfaust. Then, to my horror, seeing me, he grinned and started to bring it over to me. Two steps across the track, he was cut down by a blast of machine gun fire, dying instantly. Quite naturally, I was always affected by the loss of any member of my platoon, but the memory of seeing McCabe die as he had lived, bringing in his spoils to the platoon HQ, stayed with me for a very long time. Corporal Orr, one of my best section commanders, had strayed too near the edge of the track and fell to the ground, making a frightening noise, something between a shout and a moan. I saw that he had been hit in the arm, and fearing that his cries would affect the morale of his section, I shouted to him to be quiet something I've always regretted, uh, regretted, although I'm not sure that it, though I, though I am sure that it was the right thing to do. He turned his head towards me with a look of appeal in his eyes, but he stopped moaning. After the battle, I discovered that the wound in his arm was merely the entry, and it had gone right through and into his lung. Owing to the difficulty in moving through the trees and the undergrowth, the leading section with whom I was moving became separated, and had in addition sustained several casualties. I ordered my platoon sergeant to push up the reserve section, but it too was in a sorry state. Both the section commander and his second IC had been killed and others wounded. Approaching the end of the wood, my Batman, Rifleman Rooney and I seemed to have got ahead of the rest of the section. Not a difficult thing to do as the dense nature of the wood only allowed limited visual communication. Bursting our way through some particularly thick undergrowth, we suddenly came upon a, upon a trench containing six Germans. The machine gun at the end of the trench had apparently been concentrating on the tanks and the opposite section, which was extremely lucky for us. I don't know who were the more astonished, the Germans or us. Suddenly, they all disappeared below the parapet of the trench, and Mooney, at the same time, dived to the ground, yelling, Look out! I had no time to follow him, and in any case, I had no idea what had caused him to hit the ground. I soon found out. As the Germans ducked, ducked one of them had thrown a stick grenade, which landed at our feet. Mooney, on the ground, caught the full blast in the chest. Luckily, I was still on my feet and was hit in the thigh, but not knocked over. At that stage, I couldn't feel anything, but found it difficult to remain standing. Immediately after the explosion, six German heads reappeared, each wearing a look of amazed horror when they realised I was still on my feet and pointing my Sten gun at them. Six pairs of hands shot into the air, and I would imagine that six prayers went up in the same direction. I think I could have raked them with my Sten gun with some justification, but I found it difficult to bring myself to do so whilst they stood with their hands above their heads. On the other hand, I had, was finding it difficult to stand, and I fell, and if I fell in front of them, there was no telling what action they would take. All this happened in sections, but the situation resolved itself by the arrival of Sergeant Rainey and the remnants of the two sections, and the Germans were dispatched to the rear. And that was it. That's basically evacuated back, wounded in the thigh, and he can no longer lead the platoon. But what's interesting about that fear of what the Germans would do, because there's some context to that because again you can see by reading the earlier pages they had understood that the germans didn't necessarily play the, the war in the kind of cricket way the british did because when they had taken combon plain back on june the 9th they'd found that and this way probably it may have been 12th ss or it could have been 21st panzer they found germans who had been wounded but the germans had dispatched their own wounded they found these groups of men all shot with a single shot uh, in the head by their own men. And the realization my uncle had that the Germans weren't always going to be playing by the same kind of rules. So, um, and they'd heard because they were on the side of the Canadians, they'd known what happened at places like Abbey Darden uh, early in the, in the campaign and the murders of things like that. So 
he's very wary about being captured, very wary about the fact that Germans might shoot prisoners. So um, he, he stays on his feet long enough, even though he's in intense pain, to, to, for his men to come up and, and save it, save, pull him back and, and, and evacuate him. Well, after being wounded and evacuated, what, what happened to him? Uh, it's a it's a you know typical process of you know his story is is the standard one of evacuation from the various you know regimental aid posts back to to, to bigger and bigger and better hospitals and eventually on a, on a troop ship that went back to Southampton and it it was it ended up being lots of light shrapnel wounds to his thigh rather than one big wound it seems that the the, the the moody who was killed had taken the brunt of the blast and he was he was killed if the account wasn't clear he was actually killed by that and is buried at, at banville cemetery um i think but my uncle Tung took the secondary blast of just shrapnel so he was actually walking wounded I mean, it was clear he couldn't i mean it was blood coming out of everywhere and it was it was kind of the fear of infection but he could walk about but what his funny story about being on the troop ship is that the blast had basically blown his trousers off completely. So he, he had no trousers on, uh, but he was walking. He would walk around, his boots were okay. His battle dress blouse was okay, but he just had no trousers. And, he, and his underpants, as he would say, were a pretty sorry state because it's basically the same pants he'd been wearing since June, June the 6th. And he turned them inside out a couple of times and back to front a couple of times. But I think they'd had, they'd had, they they may have had one allocation of, of clean uniforms once in the normal campaign, but he'd been wearing these things for a long time. So on the trip ship back to Southampton, this stuff isn't in his memoirs, but this is just stuff he would tell me. The first thing that was really alarming as a 13, 14 year old when I was told this is that he had been given quite a lot of booty by other men of the platoon because he wasn't going to die from this injury. They were giving him, take this back to my sister, take this back. So he was getting everybody's war trophies. So he had, he went, had a, kit bag full of Lugers and P-38s and Hitler youth knives and 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 in his case his paperweight although he managed to hold on to that and on board the ship the hospital ship as they're entering Southampton Har uh, Portsmouth Harbour um, there's an order where someone says anybody who has got any war booty your processing when you arrive in will be that much longer you are allowed to bring it in but you're going to have to go into that like his customs you know de to declare or not to declare so we advise anybody who doesn't want if you want to go just go off on leave and go and to just dispose of what your war booty over the side of the boat so my great uncle along with lots of other men on this boat went up and tipped all their lugers and hitler youth knives and daggers and stuff over the side of the boat so somewhere three miles off Portsmouth is a big stock of war booty that was thrown off by the guy. But my uncle didn't want to go through the whole process of writing all the paperwork out. But the funny story is, is it was LCI. It might've been LCI. It had gang, it had gang plank kind of walkway things off this boat. And he was walking wounded. And he'd been walking around the ship as they're coming into Harbour saying, it's anywhere where I can get a pair of trousers because I feel a bit weird just walking off here with, you know, my shitty pants on. And there's no, there's no, there's no trousers on board, mate. You have to wait till you get on, on, on shore. So he's coming down the, 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 the plank, the, the ramp, the whatever it is, whatever type of ship it was. I don't, I've never done, I've not done the research into what ship it was. Horror upon horror. There's a Pathé film team at the bottom recording all the wounded coming off. And my uncle's first thought is, oh my God, my, my fiance, my mum and dad are going to see in the newsreels me coming down the gangplank in my shitty underwear. And that the first thought will be, not that I've been wounded, but why is he wearing such dirty pants? <laughs> and luckily at the last minute, the camera panned off as someone else was coming off another boat. An ambulance came in with someone really badly wounded and the, and the camera panned off. So he, he wasn't actually caught, caught in shot, but it's shock, shot. But it's interesting that his thought was, you know, that your mum tells you, make sure you're wearing clean underwear in case you get hit by the bus. He's just survived, you know, two month Normandy campaign. He's, you know, and yet his first thought is being seen on a newsreel with dirty underwear. But it didn't it's an happen. incredible story. <laughs> it's it's a bizarre one to kind of conclude on, but that but that's it. But the the legacy though of of my great uncle, if you don't mind me carrying on talking, is he as I said, he was in the London Irish Rifles post war territorial, so he was active. He would represent the regiment, all sorts of functions. I mean, he famously met the Queen at one of the events at South Sea Common, I think for the 50th anniversary, something like that. He he would speak at you go to dinner, go to annual reunions and what have you, but 
towards um, when they came to Normandy, and it was often men from both battalions. So the second battalion who were infantry and third division, and also first battalion, the airborne, sixth airborne guys. But you know what it's like. You the 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 veteran associations were made up of a lot of guys who joined the unit late in the war because they're the ones who've survived and as you you know you read his memoirs people like mccabe had been killed mooney had been killed rainy his staff sergeant did his platoon sergeant did survive but the his fellow officers as you know if you carry those who carried on most of them got killed most of the c company officers that he was friends with if they weren't killed in norman they were killed later later on they were killed in holland they were killed in germany so he had very few friends and there was one particular event, I think it might have been the 60th anniversary in Normandy, um, where he was almost accused of being a, not a real veteran because no one knew who he was. And it was like, God, I was, I was there on D-Day. But it's because he, he'd left early. He'd left in, you know, he was back in England by August. So he, he always felt a bit um, uh, weird about that and also that his war was cut short, you know, and even as a kid, because my grand, I said, I mentioned my granddad, my granddad was anti-aircraft in, 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 in Britain, never went overseas, was going to be earmuffed in, this is from my mother's side of the family, my grandfather was my uncle is from my dad's side. But anyway, my grandfather, to me was a real hero, because he was six years in the army, six years he did. And as a kid, I'd heard that my, my uncle Cyril had only done two months. I mean, I didn't realize he'd actually done two years of training before then and all that. But I always as a kid, I was like, you know, he did two months, my, my granddad did six years. I felt my granddad was the real hero. But that was just a stupid naivety as a kid. I hadn't realized that as a platoon commander doing two months in Normandy, he'd outlived his life expectancy three times. I mean, that's the the data supposedly is the platoon commander in Normandy, be it British, American or Canadian, had a life expectancy of about 15 days. So if he did two months, he'd done three or four times beyond his life expectancy. That's the odds you are facing in that role. So as I came in, came an adult, I realized those two months were, were incredible, you know, patrolling and in, involved in the landings, albeit not first wave, bomb bomb plane where, you know, 11 officers were killed on June the 9th, he wasn't out of one battalion. And then the Battle of the Corps and Goodwood and Troan, he was wounded, but it didn't stop him. You know, he was, he was patched up, but he was patched up to such a, he couldn't go back into line again. I think he saw out the war as a training officer and i think by then he'd already gone to london irish rifles i think he was in london irish rifles at the end of the war uh training people in london i've read an interview that your uncle did with the irish times which gave a really harrowing illustration for the fierceness of the fighting of the rifles were involved in uh, i believe cyril stated that 15 of his 36 man platoon died in the battle for normandy yeah. Now that for me is absolutely staggering because that doesn't even take into consideration the missing, the wounded, and the fact you've got replacements filling those voids as well. What came of them? Yeah, well, again, I think it's down to the fact that although he doesn't specifically outline it in his book, he was identified as being this lone loner kind of guy. So he got these kind of flanking, patrolling, extra activities that sometimes meant, although he never felt he was in the major battle, it's a real paradox there in that he ever felt he was in the major major assault and yet as you said he lost 15 men as a platoon but i think it was because apart from the eight lost on hill 60 it was more he lose one one or two there one or two there, and it was kind of a it was a, a gradual chipping away of his platoon rather than one of those kind of monumental days where everybody got killed which you see with other units it was just a, a progressive thing and it was and and again he would talk about the guilt of being good at his job because although that whoever it was, whether it was company commander or battalion commander said to him earlier in the war, you're quite good, but you're not very good. By Normandy, he was very good. And because he was very good, he got the jobs appropriate to being very good, especially as you know, we all know listening to this is the turnover between commanders, you know, the, the guys coming in as replacement and command positions hadn't had, the, you know, they're coming, they're coming straight out of Octu. They're coming Where's my, as I said, my uncle done all this year and a half of courses, the engineering course, the motorbike course, the battle groups, the battle schools. He'd done all this stuff, camouflage courses, uh, language courses. You, know, you could, I, I never have a copy of his, of, his, of his army service, but I would imagine it's just course, 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 course. But the guys coming in to replace, I don't know who off the top of my head replaced Lieutenant Dizerans in, in D Company, but I assume it would be someone straight out of Octu. So this is a guy who just literally done his standard, officer's course on a boat joins the regiment 
And so the loss of people like my uncle meant that the replacements coming in weren't as good. And, and my uncle was very good at his job. And I know he dealt with the fact that being good at his job probably got more men killed than if he hadn't been good at his job, which is a reverse paradox. You would think a bad commander would kill more men than a good commander, but the good commander gets the tougher missions. I think it's an interesting point about replacements as well. Um, there's a really interesting uh, illustration of that in the Rifles War Diary, where I think it's on D-Day, the officer commanding the mortar platoon is wounded and has to be evacuated. And then his replacement comes, I think, maybe D plus one. And then within sort of three or four days, he's himself wounded and evacuated. Yeah. I mean, the, the turnover is phenomenal. I think they went through two... I think they, um, the brigade went went through two Padres. I think two Padres, I think, were killed in Normandy. Certainly one was, and I think one was maybe maybe wounded and evacuated out. So they're on their, like, by the time they get to Con, they're on their third chaplain. And which is interesting, because you know, we, we know now that the Chap Royal Army Chaplain Corps had some of the worst losses. I think the third after Bomber Command and Chindit or something like that in World War II, as percentage-wise. There's not many of them there, but because they're going out, getting missing and, and bringing back the dead bodies, and they're there, and the, and their motorbikes and so you know as we know um chaplain brown the canadian who was killed by the germans on june the 7th you know probably by the ss murdered because they're going out on their own so chaplains are being lost as well so yeah the loss of platoon commanders was 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 quite monumental so you know when, when you asked me to do this you know i kind of my my interest in the royal officer rifles to some extent stops the day my great uncle was wounded that's that's after that i kind of i don't lose interest but the personal connection kind of goes um, and seeing when he would come back to Normandy, him being kind of a not a, a, not accused of being a fraud veteran, but it, I remember being there. We were in, we were at the Royal Survivors Monument in Combon Plain. I think that was not one of the big anniversaries. It was maybe two thousand two, two thousand three, something like that. And it may have been the last but one time I saw him here. And, and there was a conversation like, who are you? And these other guys who joined the Royal Oyster Rifles later in the war, who hadn't even done Normandy, were questioning a guy who had actually been in that battle in Combon Plain. It was quite surreal there. My great uncle was quite uh, annoyed by it. And we were there, well, I think that was the year the road in Caen got named after um, Harris. Um, and we were there to, to, have to see the, the naming of the, of the, of the road then Brigid and Harris's widow was there because Harris had died a few years earlier, but his widow was there and she knew Cyril. But it was like some of these other versions, only when they saw Cyril know the wife of the battalion commander, did they kind of accept, oh, he really was a veteran. It was a really weird thing for him. Um, but yeah, he'd been, yeah, he'd been one of the, one of the original. Well, not, you know, so not the Dunkirk originals, but he was original from, you know, year and a half before D-Day and then up to when he was wounded in, in what he, what we know now as Goodwood, but he doesn't refer to it as Goodwood. He doesn't, I don't think he ever uses the, the words Operation Goodwood. And he, it's just, from his point of view, it was moving towards Troan. It's another chapter of his war, but he doesn't mention the operation. Following, uh, obviously, your uncle's wounding and the events around Turan, what becomes of the Second Order Royal Ulster Rifles and how does their campaign essentially conclude in Normandy? Well, just the, the same as a third division, really, more, more of the same. Um, and until eventually, you know, the, the, the campaign ends. They're, they're, again, the third division seem to be kind of peripheral to things. They're not, they're not completely involved in the closing of the Falaise Gap, but they're kind of on the periphery of things. And to me, the, the big thing about reading about the third division in this period is that again it's the integration of the replacements coming in that's there that, that's that's more of the problem they're facing than the actual combat is that they have had so many losses and battalions are changing commanders all the time and lots of kind of um bitty actions they're involved in and just the weariness of, of seeing it through and i i think from some of the men that my great uncle was served alongside they 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 never felt they got their kind of hurrah moment in the norm at the end of the Normandy campaign. It just morphed into the moving across towards Belgium. Some units perhaps got that. I know they had been part of the liberation of Caen, but they were out of Caen uh, into the fields outside by the time Caen got repaired. So, so lots of British soldiers got to walk through Caen and have dates with girls and have, you know, when it was starting being cleared up in, 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 you know, in, in late July, mainly early August, but the Royal Oster Rifles, who'd been part of the force to liberate it, had only ever seen Khan at its worst. So they never kind of saw that benefit afterwards. And I think the same thing about the Normandy campaign. They never kind of got that moment to me where they 
managed to kind of shake hands with Canadian soldiers where they linked up a gap or they met up with the Americans here, or they have that that pivotal moment where they particularly take a town where they can say, ha, this brings our campaign to an end. It just kind of morphs into that continuation of the war. And, you know, you, you read other books like John Lincoln of the Royal Norfolk's in the third division. He's a great book um, that they don't, they don't even separate the campaigns like we do. That's that, that to me is where we see the Normandy is the end of a chapter. And now here's the battle for Belgium or here's the battle of the Netherlands. The guys in the third division, I don't think have those separations. Like my uncle not referring to Operation Goodwood. It's just a continuation of more of the same shit. I so, that's a very interesting point, actually, to be honest with you, Paul. Even, even if we took that just as the Normandy campaign, that today, obviously, we, or even in this podcast, we tried to separate it into, you know, Cam's, uh, Charmwood, Capture Khan, and Goodwood. But there's, and I think people probably would overlook it, there's that attritional nature throughout of it, which is constantly ebbing away at these units. It's almost like a, like you touched on earlier with Cam, based around that, that Western Front, that First World War feel to it. Yeah. I mean, definitely. And, and that, you know, he, I don't think in his book he ever mentions Charmwood by name. Um, he doesn't mention Goodwood by name. Um, I don't think he even mentions Neptune Overlord by name. It's always just the villages and the individual campaigns. He, he kind of lists it. He, we, we, are, as, we as historians give these campaigns distinct headlines and classifications we said this is this campaign and then the division moves here for this campaign but i think for the men who were in it it was a repetitive continuing of the same stuff and 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 i said that's why i try and look at the royal oster rifles experience from that point of view of what they were experiencing rather than that here's the division moving here here's the division moving over here because you know we know the third division moves about a bit and they get you know they're kind of on the they get we could do a whole thing about the fact they're kind of periphery of this and periphery of that and blue coat and goodwood and all these things there and the breakout but if you're in it i don't think you're noticing that you're, you're not the villages all look the same um it's another hill it's another village it's another group of germans and 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 the, the, the fact is they don't get that chance to kind of go back and have a few weeks of break i mean particularly the canadian third division when we talk about the, their experiences the queen's own rifles of canada who my great uncle Cummer came across quite a lot because they when they moved into um to move to attack to combon plain they went through a nisi which is where the queen's own rifles were and they bumped into them again later on in in, in other units of the third division Canadian third division in Caen. those guys they don't even have the replacements that these guys they're, they're it's the same guys and and, and they, they don't get that break uh my uncle got a few 48 hour passes here and there um or 12 hour passes what have you but i think that sense that for the infantryman, it was just a continuing grind, and I say an attritional, attritional campaign. Out of interest, did your uncle ever recall experiencing the infamous German naval warfare? I don't think so. No, um, it's always eighty-eight. Everything he refers to is always eighty-eight. Um, um, although he doesn't fall into the trap of t- calling every tank a tiger, he always talks to the Mark IVs. It was Mark IVs in, in Combon Plain. In fact when he'd done it, that he led his platoon in on the 9th of June into Combon Plain there, they, they went round a corner and they found uh, a, a Mark IV that had been abandoned, I think it was. And they really, they realized that it had been kind of put, dug in, hulled down into a field, but it was just at the wrong angle to have been, had affected their C companies and 15 platoons advance. And my uncle was, was telling me that if the tank had been swung round maybe six inches more, facing to the, to the left, I think it was, its gun might have been able to reach them when they were on their way in, but it was just in the wrong place. And maybe the Germans knew that themselves and decided not to reposition it and just abandon it at some point. So my uncle is often referencing these moments where a thing was somewhere where it had been a few inches to the left, like the, with the, the, the paperweight incident, something could have happened just a few inches left or right or a few seconds earlier or later, like the three men who were disintegrated by a shell. They had walked, they were walking into a space. My uncle had left five seconds out. They were behind, they were 10 steps behind my uncle. So if that shell had come in a few seconds earlier, my uncle would have been one of the three disintegrated by the 88, but he was just ahead. So he has a lot of references to the, the, uh, the, the luck of that randomness that I've been talking about earlier of that, that tank could have been just, if that had been just there. That would have raked our advance. We wouldn't be here, but it was just there, so it was it was pointing that way, so it couldn't reach us. He was very astute at understanding some of the um, 
the lucky breaks he had. Well, Paul, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed this conversation and learning a bit more about your uncle's experience in Normandy. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Well, thank you. And it's a, ch a chance to talk to him. And I, I just now wish I'd asked him the questions that I would ask now. And um, he, he, he passed away all 10 years ago. I, didn't, I wasn't even able to go to his funeral because he, he died in the summer, right in the middle of when I was busy with tours. And it just, long reason I, did, I didn't go back for his funeral. But, um, you know, you, you, know I, you know that you should have asked things that, oh, God, I wish I'd asked that. Like, how did he come into the army? I still don't know that bit there. Well, Paul, thank you for your time today. As I said, it's been utterly absorbing and I really appreciate learning more about your uncle and the Royal Oyster Rifles experiences. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Also, a big thank you to Paul for joining us today. And I'm sure you all agree with me that we all hope to be able to eventually read Cyril Rand's fascinating memoirs in the future. I'll be sharing more info about some of the various things mentioned in this episode on the World Recession podcast website, as well as our social media channels. You can find all this by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Worldwoods Nation, and also Instagram at Worldwoods Nation HQ, or visiting our website, www.nation.com. And if you wish to help support the Worldwoods Nation podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review, as is always greatly appreciated. Alternatively, you can also go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash www.nationhq. A link for this is in the podcast bio below. And there you can discover more about how you can get involved in podcasts, including being able to have your sound topics you wish for me to cover in future episodes, and even sneak previews where we look ahead so you can have the opportunity to fire in questions you would like me to put to our guest speakers. Looking ahead to the next instalment here on the World Station podcast, we'll be talking with historian and author Steve Darlow about one of Britain's most iconic wartime aircrafts in the form of the Avro Lancaster. We'll be learning about the story behind its conception and manufacture, as well as some of those crews who flew it and its operational record during the Second World War. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the World's Nation podcast. <laughs>